Welcome back, everybody. It's Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm Lisa Linky, and across from me, through the Ethernet cable across town, and sitting in her gorgeously appointed bedroom, is the one, the only, Misty Stinnett. Thank you. Uh, we are your co-hosts in this journey of self-help review, not technically <laughs> self-help because <laughs> we don't need it. We're fine. Just kidding. We're fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> um, we're, we're a year and three quarters into our journey of reviewing self-help books. And oh today God. is Friday. And so we're going to review another book for you. Um, and then uh, on Tuesdays, we'll follow up with homework, any homework assigned from the book and some odds and ends and, and whatnot. But today we'll be here to give you the tips, the tricks, the highs, the lows, the ins, the outs, the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, all of the encompassing. Um, that's a lie. Most of the encompassing details of the book that we're about to review. <laughs> because we can't do it in under an hour and we don't want to. We want you to support the author if this resonates with you. And if by some chance this sounds like a true dumpster fire of garbage, then we want to warn you and save you the time, energy, and money that it would take um, for you to <laughs> bring this into your life and consume it. <laughs> also, we cuss. So, fuck that. I think I hit everything. You are on fire today. That was well, unbelievable. Trying. Because I'm noticing as of late that our intros are getting to be like five minutes. So I want to pop right in. I know. I, I noticed that too as we were editing and was like, that's not what I want out of a podcast. So let's keep it briefy brief. Thanks, So please. that's who we are. This is what we do. Today, Misty is bringing us a book. And Misty, what have you brought for us today? Lisa, I have brought for you a book that I am very excited to present. It is... A drum roll, please. So good. That was a terrible drum roll. I know. And also, like, I don't know how to do sound effects yet. It's like a cat who's angry but purring. Yeah. Like it's about to turn on you and swat you in the face. I am bringing you So Good They Can't Ignore You, Why Skills Trump Passion in the Quest for Work You Love by Cal Newport. I am so excited. I also just realized everyone listening to this already knows what it is. There's no need for a drum roll. <laughs> yep. I know. I realized that too as we were doing it. it. But I'm excited because I didn't know what it was. So you know what? Super exciting. I pushed back a little. Maybe someone's like just let, like brought up the feed and is just letting them roll and doesn't know what's going to go next. And you're 24 hours deep into a marathon of GHY. Thank you. Okay, so Cal Newport, we we covered at the beginning of 2020. Yeah. Um, digital minimalism. Yes, which, which I were a big loved. Fan of. Loved, loved, loved. And I immediately felt judged, so I hated him. Um, <laughs> but I do know he he is a great author and a great academic, so I'm excited to see what what he has to say about this. Yeah, and I've also read his book Deep Work, which I don't think we presented mm. on the podcast. You'd think I'd remember, but I don't think I have. But um that deep we have. Work. Okay, we're going to move right past that, ladies and gentlemen, non-binary, non-gender conforming, gender fluid. So if I were to summarize this book in a sentence, I would say that it is, you do not have to 
have a pre-existing passion to find work that you love. Okay. Which is really exciting. And we'll talk about why I found this book so incredibly liberating uh, as we okay, go. Great. So the And just this, the title is like a Steve Martin quote, isn't it? It is. So when Steve Martin was, you know, the famous comedian and now banjo player was asked his secret to success and to fame and to breaking into the industry, he said, be so good they can't ignore you. And so Cal Newport really wanted to ask this question. Well, wait a second. How do you get to be so good? They can't ignore you. You know, what, what's all involved in that? So that's what this book tackles. So, uh, really quickly, the Kindle is, uh, just under $12 after credits, whatever that means. The audiobook mm-hmm. is $19.95 or one credit on Audible yeah, and a is. credit's like 15 bucks. The hardcover, and that's what I read, and it is that kind of book, is $20.13. And the paperback is eleven eighty eight. Okay. This is the hardcover, Lisa. As you can see, it's yeah. orange. It's very eye-catching. Yeah, there's it's like um in black and white letters, and black it says so, and then white it says good, and then black it says they can't ignore, and then white it says you. <laughs> so I'm already being yelled at. I already hate it. No, you don't. You're going to love You're this You're right. Book. I don't. You're going to love this book. And I read, read this book, which was really an interesting exercise in sitting still for so many hours because <laughs> Misty did say to me, she goes, it takes so long to read, read a book. And I was like, it does. Yeah, because I like to absorb every single word and understand it. It's a very different experience for me than when I'm kinesthetically learning a skill or I really am learning I'm an auditory learner. So, you yeah. know. You love to listen to a book on 1.75. No, and like, no. You know you do because you are a fast talker and you are a fast interpreter of it's language. It's one and a half. 1.75 is me. crazy. Anyway, <laughs> just kidding. So uh, a little bit about Cal Newport, and this is from the author's website, calnewport.com. Cal Newport graduated from Dartmouth College in 2004 and earned his PhD in electrical engineering and computer science at MIT in 2009. After a two-year postdoc, also at MIT, he started during the 2011 to 2012 academic year as an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University. He earned tenure in the spring of 2016, and his current title is Provost Distinguished Professor of Computer Science. That's very fast to earn tenure. I was just thinking that. I understand that it can take like most of your career to earn tenure. And if you're a woman or especially a, a person of color, it can take never. A good fucking luck. So in addition to researching cutting-edge technology, he also writes about the impact of these innovations on our culture. Newport is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Digital Minimalism and Deep Work, which argues that... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) which argues that focus is the new IQ in the modern workplace. Newport's work has been published in over 25 languages and has been featured in many major publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Washington Post, and The Economist. He regularly... I get it. Nobody's heard of him. Okay. He's stupid. He's unqualified. He's mean. So he regularly writes articles on these topics for a variety of outlets, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, and his long-running blog, Study Hacks, which receives over 3 million visits a year. He's also a frequent guest on NPR. And we noted this the last time uh, that we did an intro for him, but he's never had a social media account. And he says, it turns out this is allowed, <laughs> which was really funny. It's not. It's not. Technically, it's not. He's not a real person. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't believe he exists. So this book is 273 pages. That's short for him. Well, what's so beautiful about it is that it's actually 230 pages. And then the next 43 pages are career profiles of the people he's talked about, glossaries, Uh, summaries, and an index. So this guy, he's really doing the research and the work and documenting this scientifically. As opposed to our last book, so uh, Think and Grow Rich, where Napoleon Hill can't can't prove that he met any of those people other than Thomas Edison. Thank you so much. What a garbage fire that was. If you want to you want to hear gar- what a garbage fire book sounds like, go listen to that That's one. It. And or yeah. any Bruce Bryan's books. So, there are 15 chapters and they're divided into four rules that encompass this book. So it's like multiple chapters per rule. Exactly. So there's different parts to each rule. And he he does such a beautiful job because he is a researcher and does have this, um, he's a prolific writer. He has a ton of peer-reviewed articles, multiple books. Before he ever wrote his first book, he had published three study guides on campus. And that's how he got into writing in the first place. Um, so he does a very good job of breaking technical things down step by step. And this book isn't even that technical. It's more philosophical, which is cool. So there are four rules to becoming so good that people cannot ignore you. Numero uno. Don't follow your passion. Zut <gasps> Je provoque. That's sacrilege. Sacrilege. I know. Numero. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, numero dos. Be so good they can't ignore you or the importance of skill. Great. Numero tres. Turn down a promotion or the importance of control. Ooh, numero cuatro. Think small, act big or the importance of mission. So he has some counterintuitive philosophies here. He really does. And you know, what's so interesting is that he also, (laughs) at the end of the book, he does this beautiful conclusion that's like 30 pages long where he explains how he applied every single rule in his own life, which I love because there's no mysterious Mm -hmm. like, think the right thoughts and then abundance will come to you. I was on my couch one day and thought about a million dollars and then someone knocked on my door and handed me a bag filled with money. connected to the infinite intelligence. Yeah. And you're like, how do I do that? So if those books frustrate you, you'll love this because he literally goes, here was my thought process. Here's how I applied it. Um, and one of those things was I wanted to be a successful author. So I made sure to have splashy chapter titles. And I was like, thank you for saying that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's great. Okay. So let's dive in. Rule number one, don't follow your passion. Don't follow your passion. <laughs> do not. I just need the listeners to know that this is a unique experience for all of us, mostly for me, because I get to see Misty on the other side of my Zoom, and <laughs> she has a book with so many post-it notes, not so many, a good number of post-it notes on the pages, and it's reminding me of, was it The Secret, where she opened the book and like one of her post-it notes fell out, and she was like, <laughs> oh no, she I was, was like, devastated. What if that was the, what if that was the one that would help us understand? Yeah. This book? What if that was the glue that was holding the whole fucking thing together? <laughs> okay. Anyway. Okay. So he starts off with setting the stage about passion. Do not follow your passion. So there's something that he calls the passion hypothesis, which says, The key to occupational happiness is to first figure out what you're passionate about and then find a job that matches this passion. Yes. 
Yeah, right? Have you not heard that your entire Everybody life? Everybody says, follow your bliss. <laughs> oh, I had a real visceral reaction to that. Why? So, okay. <laughs> I quit. That's live, laugh, love, <laughs> follow your bliss. Least- if any of you listeners have a live, laugh, love in there, I love you and I'm here for you. But you know, I also don't agree with follow your bliss and the money will come because that doesn't necessarily ring true. Thank you. And he actually talks about that statement in the book. So Cal Newport says that this hypothesis is one of modern American society's most well-worn themes. Those of us lucky enough to have some choice in what we do with our lives are bombarded with this message starting at an early age. We are told to lionize those with the courage to follow their passion and pity the conformist drones who cling to the safe path. Recently, a new, more aggressive strain of the passion hypothesis has been spreading, a strain that despairs that traditional cubicle jobs by their very nature are bad and that passion requires that you strike out on your own. And by the way, this book was published in September 2012. So that's the timetable we are in. So already... Uh, my interest has peaked and I'm going like, well, wait a second. That's all I've been told, right? Well, I also like that he says for some of us aren't lucky enough to choose. Yeah. He's very aware, you know, he's very aware that like, Mm -hmm. and that is why I find this book so liberating and I will expand on that while, how we go. But this idea that like, we have to know exactly what we want to do and know it. How, how early on do people ask you, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? at least here in America, you're like yeah. six. What do you want? You're expected to know what you want oh, to not study even. and what that, you Three, know, four. it's yeah. so yeah. messed up. So I think a better question is what kind of a person do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Who yeah. do you want to be? I want to be kind. I want to be thoughtful. I want to be smart. I want to be rich. <laughs> I want to be a rich person. Then I want to be a famous person. The number of vowels that you fit into right was really commendable. (laughs) So he says, there's a problem lurking here. When you look past the feel-good slogans and go deeper into the details of how passionate people like Steve Jobs really got started, and he tells us Steve's story at the beginning of the book, or ask Mm -hmm. scientists about what actually predicts workplace happiness, the issue becomes much more complicated. You begin to find threads of nuance that, once pulled, unravel the tight certainty of the passion hypothesis, eventually leading to an unsettling recognition. Follow your passion might just be terrible advice. And so, Burn. Mm-hmm. and just so you know, Steve Jobs was like, he reminded me so much of Michael Allen Singer's description of himself in school and graduate school. Like he, he did not wear shoes. He was attending Zen Buddhist temples. He, all he wanted to do was meditate, but he real, he realized he needed to make money and saw an opportunity with circuit boards and enlisted the help of Steve Wozniak and accidentally started Apple. It was not his passion at all. Not even a little bit. It didn't mm-hmm. become his passion till way later. Mm-hmm. So the science of passion. Why do some people enjoy their work while so many other people don't? Here's a cliff note summary of the social science research in this area. There are many complex reasons for workplace satisfaction, but the reductive notion of matching your job to a pre-existing passion is not among them. To give you a better mm-hmm. sense of the realities uncovered by this research, here are three of the more interesting conclusions I've encountered. Conclusion number one, career passions are rare. 
In 2002, a research team led by the Canadian psychologist Robert J. Valorand administered an extensive questionnaire to a group of 539 Canadian university students. The questionnaire's prompts were designed to answer two important questions. Do these students have passions? And if so, what are they? Here are the top five identified passions. Dance, hockey. These were Canadian students, mind you. Ski. La passion de les Canadiens. Merci beaucoup. Skiing, reading, and swimming. Though dear to the hearts of the students, these passions don't have much to offer when it comes to choosing a job. In fact, less um, than... Look at Michael Phelps. Thank you. Yep. And that's... He also talks about how that's the problem when we highlight very rare yes. examples like professional athletes and say, this is what happens. So what he does in his research in the book is finds finds the patterns that apply to the most people. Because he figures those are the most useful, which I love. So he says, in fact, less than 4% of the total identified passions had any relation to worker education, with the remaining 96% describing hobby-style interests such as sports and art. Take a moment to absorb this result as it deals a strong blow to the passion hypothesis. How can we follow our passions if we don't have any relevant passions to follow? At least for these Canadian college students, the vast majority will need a different strategy for choosing their career. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, so more research that was done on this interviewed people with nearly identical work responsibilities, college administrative assistants. So a researcher interviewed all of these and to her admitted surprise, these employees were roughly evenly split between seeing their position as a job, a career, or a calling. Mm. In other words, it seems that the type of work alone does not necessarily predict how much people enjoy it. In this research, the happiest, most passionate employees were not those who followed their passion into a position, but instead those who have been around long enough to become good at what they do. On reflection, this makes sense. Mm. If you have many years experience, then you've had time to get better at what you do and develop a feeling of efficacy. It also gives you time to develop strong relationships with your coworkers and to see many examples of your work benefiting others. What's important here, however, is that this explanation, though reasonable, contradicts the passion hypothesis, which instead emphasizes the, that immediate happiness that comes from matching your job to a true passion. Conclusion number three, passion is a side effect of mastery. So he talks about something called the self-determination theory, which is arguably the best understanding science currently has for why some pursuits get our engines running while others leave us cold. The self-determination theory tells us that motivation in the workplace or elsewhere requires that you fulfill three basic psychological needs, factors described as the nutriments required to feel intrinsically motivated for your work. Number one, autonomy, the feeling that you have control over your day and that your actions are important. Number two, competence, the feeling that you are good at what you do. Number three, relatedness, the feeling of connection to other people. The last need is the least surprising. If you feel close to people at work, you're going to enjoy your work more. It's the first two needs that prove more interesting. It's clear, for example, that autonomy and competence are related. And most jobs, as you become better at what you do, not only do you get the sense of accomplishment that comes from being good, but you're typically also rewarded with more control over your responsibilities. 
So these results help explain the research study with the administrative assistants, right? Perhaps one reason that more experienced assistants enjoyed their work was because it takes time to build the competence and autonomy that generates this enjoyment. Competence and autonomy are achievable by most people in a wide variety of jobs, assuming they're willing to put in the hard work required for mastery. This message is not as inspiring as follow your passion and you'll immediately be happy, but it certainly has a ring of truth. In other words, working right trumps finding the right work. Mm-hmm. So I feel like already you can see why this book is liberating and you're going like, oh shit, there are things I can do in my very current situation to find more mm, autonomy. That's an interesting way of looking at it. If your work structure allows that, because there are some that do not. Exactly. And he does talk about how to help change your work structure or build up skills to move to a new work structure if you need to. So uh, this is from chapter three, Passion is Dangerous, in which he argues that subscribing to the passion hypothesis can make you less happy. So he says, the passion hypothesis is not just wrong, it's also dangerous. Telling someone to follow their passion is not just an act of innocent optimism, but potentially the foundation for a career riddled with confusion and angst. Before continuing, I should emphasize an obvious point. For some people, following their passion works. The power of passion is even more common when you look to the careers of gifted individuals, such as professional athletes. You'd be hard-pressed, for example, to find a professional baseball player who doesn't claim that he has been passionate about the sport as far back as he can remember. Some people I've talked to about my ideas have used example of this type to dismiss my conclusions about passion. Here's a case where someone successfully followed their passion, they say. Therefore, follow your passion must be good advice. This is faulty logic. Observing a few instances of a strategy working does not make it universally effective. It is necessary instead to study a large number of examples and ask what worked in the vast majority of the cases, which also feels completely different than what we saw in The Secret, right? Like, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, here's example after example of person who did this, but it's not the rule. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't even compare these two books. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Examples such as professional athletes are exceptions. If anything, their rareness underscores my claim that for most people, follow your passion is bad advice. This conclusion inspires an important follow-up question. Without the passion hypothesis to guide us, what should we do instead? Tell me, Cal. I just ripped a page in the book. Misty is mad. She's fired up. Fired up. So this is from chapter four, The Clarity of the Craftsman. This is where the author introduces two different approaches to thinking about work. The craftsman mindset, which is a focus on what value you're producing in your job, and the passion mindset, a focus on what value your job offers you. Most people Mm -hmm. adopt the passion mindset, but in this chapter, I argue that the craftsman mindset is the foundation for creating work you love. The craftsman mindset focuses on what you can offer the world. The passion mindset focuses instead on what the world can offer you. This mindset is how most people approach their working lives. The deep questions driving the passion mindset, who am I and what do I truly love, are essentially impossible to confirm. Is this who I really am? And do I love this? Rarely reduced to clear yes or no responses. In other words, the passion mindset is almost guaranteed to keep you perpetually unhappy and confused. And this is my experience 
in my job, like constantly asking, is this my true calling? Is this how I'm supposed to be Mm -hmm. spending my time? Gives me anxiety. It gives me pause. It ruins all of the positive things about the situation I am in and just keeps me thinking about possibly some fantasy world that doesn't exist, right? So he then takes us into talking about the craftsman mindset. He says, there's something liberating about the craftsman mindset. It asks you to leave behind self-centered concerns about whether your job is just right and instead put your head down and plug away at getting really damn good. No one owes you a great career, it argues. You need to earn it and the process won't be easy. With this in mind, it's only natural to envy the clarity of performers like professional athletes or professional musicians. But here's the core argument of rule number two. You shouldn't just envy the craftsman mindset. You should emulate it. In other words, I am suggesting that you put aside the question of whether your job is your true passion and instead turn your focus toward becoming so good they can't ignore you. That is, regardless of what you do for a living, approach your work like a true performer. He then walks us through traits that define great work. So we all want an amazing job that makes us feel great, like we're making a difference, right? So what does that look like? So traits that define great work. And throughout the book, he is profiling people like Ira Glass or Jordan Tice, who's this uh, kind of prodigy guitar player. He's interviewed Mm -hmm. all of these people at the top of their field who love what they do and are having a big impact in the world. And he wanted to know how they got there, how they discovered that for themselves. So traits that define great work, creativity. Ira Glass, for example, is pushing the boundaries of radio and winning armfuls of awards in the process. Impact. From the Apple II to the iPhone, Steve Jobs has changed the way we live our lives in the digital age. Control. No one tells Al Merrick when to wake up or what to wear. He's a professional surfboard shaper. He's like the guy who makes all the amazing, <laughs> right? Yeah. But he has his office is his store, his workshop is a block from the beach and he can leave to go surfing whenever he wants. And everybody goes, well, I want that job. I want that lifestyle. So no one tells him what to wake up or what to wear. He's not expected in an office from nine to five. Instead, his Channel Island Surfboards factory is located a block from the Santa Barbara beach where Merrick still regularly spends time surfing. Jake Burton, carpenter, founder of Burton Snowboards, for example, recalls how negotiations for the merger between the two companies happened while he and Merrick waited for waves in a surf lineup. So how do you get these traits in your own working life? One of the first things I noticed when I began to study this question is that these factors are rare. Most jobs don't offer their employees great creativity, impact, or control over what they do and how they do it. If you're a recent college graduate in an entry-level job, for example, you're much more likely to hear, go change the water cooler than you are, go change the world. So this is where he talks about career capital, the career capital theory of great work. The traits that define great work are rare and valuable. Supply and demand says that if you want these traits, you need rare and valuable skills to offer in return. Think of these rare and valuable skills you can offer as your career capital. The craftsman mindset with its relentless focus on becoming so good they can't ignore you is a strategy well suited for acquiring career capital. This is why it trumps the passion mindset if your goal is to create work you love. Is this making sense so far? Yeah. Okay. So if we're thinking about Whatever job we're doing, even if it's data entry, right? With a craftsman mindset and we want to become so good 
that people cannot ignore us so that <laughs> our data entry. Well, uh, yeah, but you know what? Like if, if we're currently doing data entry, but we see a path in our company to being like the manager who oversees $6 billion revenue projects and we want a 30 hour work week, we've got to become damn good at what we do. If we want to say to our employers, Hey, I want to take a three month leave in the summer or I want a 30 hour work week because they We've got to become so valuable, they don't want to lose us, right? This is one of the ideas in the book. So, but here's the, here's the thing. You are eventually going to hit a plateau in your skill sets, even if you're working hard. He says, if you just show up and work hard, you'll soon hit a performance plateau beyond which you fail to get any better. This is why we see so many people who are competent in guitar and only a few who are wildly successful professional or working musicians. So this is where he spends a lot of time in the book talking about deliberate practice. He says deliberate practice might provide the key to quickly becoming so good they can't ignore you. I'm not going to spend too much time on deliberate practice because if you want to hear about it, buy this book, check out Outliers by Ma- Malcolm Gladwell, check out our episode on Grit by Angela Duckworth. But basically, mm-hmm. deliberate practice is where you're not just sitting there practicing, you're practicing just beyond your capability of what you're it makes able you uncomfortable. to do. It makes you uncomfortable. There's mental strain and you're getting immediate feedback on what you're doing. So if you're a swimmer, you're probably trying to to swim longer than your last race or your personal record. I don't know. I'm trying here. And you have a coach giving you feedback right there in that moment. And you're able to go back. I think it's also called chunking in some books. So, yeah. So in Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell actually incorrectly uh, references this uh, study. So he just said 10,000 hours makes anybody an expert and it's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And so deliberate practice, yes, exactly. Is that, is that you're not just swimming laps. You can't just swim 10,000 hours of laps and expect to become an expert at swimming. You have to be 10,000 hours in practice with a coach who's running drills. Right. Um, you're doing time trials. You're working your starts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Um, and hopefully around other people who you're competing against. Yeah. So that's the difference between just practicing a skill and deliberate practice. Exactly. So if Michael Jordan had just been kind of like throwing a basketball towards a hoop, he would never have become, thank you. He would never have, I'm watching the documentary, The Last Dance on Netflix right now. It's so good, so compelling, even if you're not a basketball person. But he had coaches there every single day, every step of the way saying, put your elbow in two degrees and try this stance and bend your Mm -hmm. knees a little bit more here. And that is what deliberate practice is. Now we're in rule number three, turn down a promotion or the importance of control. I want to pay you $1 million. Fuck you. I'm in control. (laughs) I am the captain now. Giving people more control over what they do and how they do it increases their happiness, engagement, and sense of fulfillment. So here's what he's saying is it's not just money. You can't get more money to get a, to get better sense of fulfillment. It has to be more of the things we're talking about, like autonomy and things like that. Yeah. And he says, if you look at just about anybody and you think, Oh my God, I want that job. 
they have a huge amount of control. Think about people who can work from anywhere in the world. They can take vacation when they want it. They decide their working hours when they come into the office, who they want to hire, what they think is important to work on that day. That is really at the center of all of it, right? But you could be an investment banker who makes a ton of money but you don't have control over when you want to work or what your time is or what your clients want, right? So really interesting to notice the difference. So in this chapter, he also talks about the different traps that can come with control. So I'm not going to cover these in detail by the book if you want to read them. But for example, many people without career capital, without those skills decide, hey, you know what? fuck this stupid entry-level job. I I have mm-hmm. a college degree. I just graduated a year ago. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Yes. And so they quit their jobs and they try to open a yoga studio or start a lifestyle design blog or whatever that looks like, but they don't have the traits, the career capital that people would pay for anyway. So You don't want to make the mistake of asking for too much control before you have the career capital to back it up. So for example, if I'm a highly specialized computer programmer with an incredible track record of building amazing systems, I can say, hey, I don't want to do this job anymore. I don't want to come in and report nine to five. I'm going to do my own thing and take on my own clients. I can do that and will be successful because people will come to me. They're already willing to pay for that skill, right? But if I do not have yes. that, no one's going to come to me. I also feel like there, if, if, if you've never tried to start your own business or work on your own, you don't recognize that trading the nine to five means trading to 24 seven in some yes. ways because you are hustling for your own money. You have, you're, you're the person who has to create all of the work that comes in yeah. and you're the person who has to source all of the work that needs to come in. Yes. So it, it, while we are looking at the rare examples of like the guy who owns the world renowned surfboard design company who lives a block from the beach, but like how many other surfboard company, uh, surfboard shops close every year? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so having been a person who went from a full-time job to not a full-time job, mm-hmm. like, yes, there is freedom in that. And suddenly you have to be good at marketing and you have to be good at billing and you have to be good at like all those logistics. So there's a piece of that that I feel like he's kind of glossing over. I actually don't think so. One, it's probably a product of my summary because he does talk about all of these things. And the the second thing is, Lisa, I would argue that what you just said are pieces of career capital that you need. Before you, before you launch on your own, you do have to know how to be organized, know how to track invoices, know how to reach out and have, maybe have a customer base already. Right. So like, that's smart. That's a great way to, to put it. Yeah. Thank you. And he uses these examples throughout the book of people who made missteps and failed and went, you know, started their own businesses because they wanted that, but they just opened a yoga studio with a hundred hour teacher trainer certificate but not much else, right? And then it or people who become coaches online because they just got a certificate. Okay, great. Exactly. I see what you're but if you have worked as you know VP in five major Fortune 500 companies and have a track record for growing business, and you've had a blog for three years that gets a lot of traffic, you know that you can probably start your own coaching business because 
people will pay for that and you have that career capital. So the other control trap he talks about is that just as soon as you have the career capital that makes you valuable enough to gain more control is exactly the point where your employers will value you so much that they will try to stop you from going out on your own and keeping you there. And where other people in your life might say, well, why would you give up an amazing tenured university position to go be your own author? That's a mistake. Um, so he walks, right. he walks you through how to navigate both traps and how to tell the difference, right? Cause sometimes you think you're at control trap number two, but really you're at number one and you don't have the career capital, but you don't know it. So really excellent mm-hmm. chapter. Rule number four, the last rule. Think small, act big, or the importance of mission. So he says the power of mission. To have a mission is to have a unifying focus for your career. It's more general than a specific job and can span multiple positions. It provides an answer to the question, what should I do with my life? Missions are powerful because they focus your energy toward a useful goal, and this in turn maximizes your impact on your world a crucial factor in loving what you do. People who feel like their careers truly matter are more satisfied with their working lives and they're also more resistant to the strain of hard work. Staying up late to save your corporate litigation client a few extra million dollars can be draining, but staying up late to help cure an ancient disease can leave you more energized than when you started. And he's referencing Mm -hmm. um, a woman who is literally working to eradicate ancient diseases in the world, which is really inspiring. I mean, if you're into that sort of thing. (laughs) I mean, it's not for everyone. So in this last chapter, he talks all about how you can't actually have a mission before you start or you can try, but the chances of it failing are high. Oh, are greater. Are yeah. Greater. So you kind of need to know what you're doing before you can. Exactly. You get your foot in the okay. door, you get good at what you're doing, and you get to what he calls the adjacent possible. You get to the Ooh. edge. I know. I love that. You get to the edge, the cutting edge of what's currently happening in your field. And it's only from that vantage point that you can see oh, I think this is something I could add on to this or innovate or incorporate to make something new. And all of this types of thinking actually reminded me so much of the Zettelkasten method and how to take smart notes. Because yeah, I see that. Yeah. So if you've missed that episode, it's amazing. Please go back and listen. We'll link to it in show notes. But basically when you're, you can make all sorts of observations and notes about different areas of life. And then when you look at them together, you can sometimes find new innovations and new ways of thinking. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm all right. I'm digging what he's saying. And what's cool about this is this actually explains why a lot of scientific breakthroughs happen around the same time. So for example, yes. So scientists who isolated the oxygen molecule did so separately on opposite sides of sides of the world in 1774 and 1776. And it explains yes. why all this innovation happens at the same time because we are, we get to the edge of what's possible and then we can build on it. So I thought that was really cool. And he talks about how missions require career capital because you have to have these traits and have this expertise to really define a goal that could impact the world in a meaningful way. So then he does this beautiful conclusion 
like I mentioned at the beginning, where he yeah. shows how he applied each of these rules to his own life. And then there is a glossary, an index, career profiles. Oh, wow. And there are so many stories that illustrate the missteps of doing these the wrong way and how people utilize these in their own life. Like accurate ways. Yeah, it really does feel like a roadmap to this philosophy. And so that is the briefest overview of So Good They Can't Ignore You. Nice. Well, it's obviously incredibly (laughs) woo-woo. But I have some questions. Yes, ma'am. Did this book need to be written? Absolutely. I think he might have been the first prominent voice to say, following your passion is terrible advice. Yeah. At least the one, first one that got published and circulated. That's why I said the first prominent voice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's the first person to kind of break through on, on that topic. As far as I know. Yeah. Right. Like there may be a lot of people who've said it, but nobody gave them the time of day or the platform. Many people on the cutting edge who then had the breakthrough, but he's the one that got published first. Thank you. Um, what did you try to put into practice from this book and how did it affect you? If, if anything at all? Oh, let me tell you, it reinvigorated me about deliberate practice. And I realized that in my own writing work, I had gotten so caught up in the TV show I was pitching and finishing a couple new pilots and sending them to my agent and taking general meetings that I really had taken a steep drop off of just exercises and workshops and deliberate practice that push my skill set. So I went ahead and signed up for a writing workshop that I was on the fence about. It's this amazing uh, series headed by this writer, Corey Mandel. Lisa, you and I have both taken these workshops and I think we can agree that they design it in such an amazing way that gives you exercises that are uncomfortable and mentally. It is deliberate practice. Yes. So I went ahead and invested the money and set aside the time. It's an eight week workshop, which is a big commitment with this and podcast. you work every day. Yeah. Every single day. But it got me so fired And it's with up. Talton, right? So Talton, Talton Wingate is my favorite teacher there. Uh, so great. He's so great. He's also the first person who ever introduced me to Zoom. And I was like, when is this platform? And now I laugh. That was like three years ago. Thank you, Talton. Uh, no, it's taught by two people, Danny and Lauren, that I haven't studied with before. And I'm really excited. Okay, great. Yeah. Oh, yay. Okay, great, great. Do you feel the author missed anything? You know, I think, and this was published back in 2012, which means he probably wrote it in 2011. I really would have loved more examples of how this works in an intersectional way or, or at least a caveat of how this applies to people other than knowledge workers. So Mm. we understand that craftsmanship is a valuable mindset. So if you're literally building furniture or you're, you're a home designer or you're a tailor, right? You're working with your hands and you're a craftsman. And we understand how gaining career skills in a knowledge worker sense can help you. But how do you apply this if you are a janitor? How do you, you know, if you're in a more occupational job? And I, I think maybe what he would say, I'm guessing is that you could take this framework and on the side, try and gain skills and go to the library and read things and find ways to incorporate your own deliberate practice into the skill sets of a job that you want. But it's not like 
if you're at an entry level job, you can apply these things right away. So it really is a long game. And I, I think anyone can infer how you could apply these, but I find myself sitting here guessing and I wish there were an explicit yeah. chapter on it. You know, I, I consider myself a craftsperson versus an artist. So I found it really rel- relatable. Just for me, the definition of a craftsperson is somebody who can replicate Yes. Over and over and over and over. Yeah. You're not waiting for an epiphany from the muses Mm -hmm. to come through you and make you paint an amazing painting. And in that sense, I add value because regardless of the situation, I'm going to be able to perform. Yeah. So if I'm at an entry level job, I guess the way I would relate it is how can I add value? Yes. Right. Like what are the ways that I can add value, which aren't, you know, you may not have management who's open or has made channels for you to show them. Yeah. But I agree with you. Um, who would you buy this book for and who would you love this book for? Live, laugh, love. I would buy this book for any college student, and I think it's applicable far beyond that. But the reason that I say college students is I think there is, or, or anyone graduating high school. And this, this is tough because this is his first book. And I do think it has a lot more academic wording and meaty sentences than I remember his other mm-hmm. books having after this. Cause he is, you know, he's got his PhD and he's a technical writer. Um, but I feel like there is so much pressure around the time you're finishing high school to pick the perfect major, find the perfect job, you're graduating college, make sure that you position yourself in exactly the right place at the right time, or you're going to screw up the next 30 years of your life. That's how I felt. I think that's how a lot of my friends feel. This book felt like it liberated me from that pressure. He talks about how the most successful people bounced from job to job to job and never knowing what their passion was, but acquiring career capital along the way. It just felt so liberating. And I think for me, this is the first time that I've ever seen a way out of what I think is the damaging thinking of, well, fuck, this isn't exactly where I'm supposed to be. So now I'm discontent in this job. As opposed to seeing it, it's a reframe of seeing it as holding me back to seeing this as a wonderful opportunity to acquire more skill. So for anybody who is discontent in their job and specifically early on upstream, those who have not even entered the workforce yet, this can allow you to go and it allows you to understand, should I take that big job with the big salary in the big city, or should I take this fledgling thing that offers me a lot more control? You know, you're going to be able to better parse out those questions rather than agonizing about whether you made the wrong choice or not. And who would you never buy it for? I don't think there's anybody I wouldn't buy it for. Ooh. I don't think so. I, I think it's really, I think the academic nature of some of the sections, particularly the conclusion, I had to read things three and four times to actually mm-hmm. understand what was happening. So it might be difficult for someone who gets tripped up on trying to parse that stuff out because that can definitely be an obstacle and hearing the message. Yeah. Oh, maybe I, I might not buy it for somebody who just lost all their money investing in a terrible entrepreneur entrepreneurship venture. Right. Yeah. That and well, maybe wait, maybe wait a year. Yeah. 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 Wait till, <laughs> wait till they've dried their eyes and are done crying and then say, here's what and you did wrong is, and is closed. slip it to them. <laughs> totally. Um, a listener challenge. Do you have homework for listeners and for me? Yeah. 
well, Lisa, I'm just curious for you in particular. I mean, I, I want everybody, my hope is for everybody listening that we can all look at our situations and ask ourselves, is there more that I could be learning from my job? Is there a way for me, especially those of us who are dissatisfied with our current situations? Is there a way that I could be gaining more career capital so that I feel like I'm working towards more control? Because I think that's a really positive thing Mm -hmm. to do in any situation. And Lisa, your homework specifically, I'm curious, you did go from a corporate job, a very corporate job at a big company with benefits, the whole Shazam. And then you did move into being an independent craftsman. So I want Mm -hmm. you to reflect on what point that started working for you and, and did these factors come <laughs> into it play? Ever? <laughs> right. Like career capital control, you know, those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll check in on that yeah. on the next okay. quickly bathe. I love it. Well, thank you, Misty. This was wonderful. Uh, and thanks for bringing us this book. I'm sure at some point we'll get into deep work with Cal. Yeah. And something that was pointed out to me is that, this is really the foundational book of Cal's work. And then okay. deep work came later to say, so how do I stay in deliberate practice and focus to get so good they can't ignore me? And that's where deep work comes in. And then digital minimalism was written as a third in that trio to say, and here's how to keep yourself from the distractions so that you can do more deep work so that you can become so good they can't ignore you. I love it. Just so you're clear, every time you mention his second book title, all I hear is Deep Work. Daddy. Cal Newport. With Captain Daddy. (laughs) All right, everybody. With that, life life is is abundant. abundant. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at Podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.